Well, over recent months, we've been making our way through the armor of God as it's found in Ephesians chapter 6. And you'll remember that, that Paul has told us that there is a spiritual battle that truly is raging all around us. We're at war. We're in the middle of some very heavy battle. And though we, we see the carnage everywhere as you look around, you're not able to see the players. You're not able to see those players, those demonic forces that are at work all around you with your own human eyes. You can't see them. All around us you see the proof, you see the destruction, you see the battle because it's real. The forces of good and evil are battling all around us, but I want you to know that as we've already learned and as we just prayed, that even though these spiritual forces are battling all around us, we know that Jesus Christ has inflicted the death blow. We know that Jesus Christ is already victorious. He has already defeated Satan and he has defeated all the demonic forces. We know that's true. They've been defeated and they just await the execution of their sentence so they await their eternal they await their eternal fate and so their desire my friends right now is to create as much collateral damage as they possibly can on their way out and as a result of that truth the people in this room right now are in a life and death wrestling match with those spiritual forces for the security of their eternal souls first peter 5:8 tells us that We have to be aware. We must be ready. We must be watching. We must be faithful to keep our eyes open because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's seeking someone to destroy. I want you to know that the enemy's forces want to destroy you. Demonic forces desire to sidetrack you. They desire to shipwreck your faith. And so they shower us with very destructive and fiery arrows of temptation and ungodly desire. They shower us with very destructive temptations. They attempt to hit us with and damage us in the vital areas of our thinking and our emotions. Because they know that if they can only find the right source of temptation, they know if they can only find the right source to cause us to let down our guard, then they can inflict horrible damage. They can inflict horrible pain to your family. They can cause you to slip and they can cause you to fall. And so that's what they're looking for. They look for every opportunity. But we don't have to defeat them. Know that they are already defeated. So I want you to know that Paul doesn't tell you to go out and attack them. He doesn't tell you to go out with your sword and chase him around. What does he tell us to do? Take a look at verse 11 of chapter 6. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Listen, put on the whole entire armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all that you may stand firm. And in verse 14 he says, stand therefore with the belt of truth around your waist. Do you get the sense that Paul wants us to do something? What is it that Paul wants us to do? He wants us to stand. He wants us to be firm. And how do we stand? Verse 11 tells us that we do it by putting on the whole armor of God. That's it. You put on the whole entire armor of God. So over the last several weeks, we've been making our way through the protective equipment of each believer that he would wear as he endeavors to stand firm in the face of temptation, as he endeavors to stand firm in the face of spiritual attacks. And so he says, in order to stand firm, we found that first of all, you have to be genuine. You have to be real. If you're not a real believer, you'll never be able to stand firm. The believer must strap around him the belt of truthfulness. He must strap around him the belt of authenticity. Friends, hear me. If you are not a true believer, you will not withstand in the time of battle and the time of struggle. Next, he says, I want you to guard the vital areas of your thoughts and guard the vital areas of your emotions with godly behavior. 
Behave yourselves in a way that is godly so that you can protect yourselves from those kinds of temptations. He says your feet are to be firmly planted on the knowledge that you are no longer an adversary with God, but that you now have peace with God. He says duck behind the shield of faith. Duck behind your shield of believing God. Remember, not believing in God because we know that even the demons and even unbelievers believe in God. But he says believe God rather than believing the lies of Satan. And so today, I'm going to take you to the fifth piece of armor. And this found on the first half of verse 17. Let's follow along with me, would you please? He says, take the helmet of salvation. So Paul says we need to put on our helmet, friends. A literal translation of that word helmet would be the thing that goes around your head. Makes sense, doesn't it? We understand why we'd want to put on the thing that goes around our head if we're in conflict. If you play baseball and you're getting up to bat, what do you do? You put on a helmet, don't you? If you're playing football, what do you do? You put on your helmet. You've got to protect your head. Plus, you can use it to whack other people in the head if they take their helmet off. <laughs> If you go on to a job site, what do you do? Put on your helmet, don't you? If you're a soldier and you're going into combat, what do you do? You put on your helmet. Listen, friends, it is very, very important that you protect your head. It's very important that you protect it from injury. Now listen to me. And when you are fighting the type of combat that the first century Romans fought, you needed to protect your head. Do you know why? Because they weren't sitting behind a computer several hundred miles away from the combat zone launching Tomahawk missiles. They were standing on the battlefield fighting hand-to-hand. Swords and clubs were everywhere. People were dying all around them. There would be cavalrymen coming in on horses swinging these big, large, double-sided broadswords that were three to four feet long. And they were trying to split open the head of anyone they could reach. The soldier had to protect his Head. He had to wear that thing around his head to protect him and deflect as many of those blows as he possibly could. And what is it that Paul tells us is the helmet that protects us? What is the helmet that protects us from the heavy-handed swing of the enemy's broadsword? Well, it's salvation, isn't it? It's salvation. Friends, listen. The helmet that protects you from the attacks of the enemy's heavy sword is the helmet of your salvation. I want to make sure that we understand that. The word salvation is the Greek noun soterion, which is where it comes from the verb sozo, which means to save. It means to preserve. Listen closely. It means to save, to preserve, to rescue, or to protect. Do you understand? So in its simplest and most basic terms, it means that those of us who have found salvation are those of us who are saved Those of us who have salvation are those who have been rescued. Deep theological minds have come up with all sorts of structures and orders to understand the concept of salvation. And the the theological term for it is soteriology, and it, it comes from this word. But the theolog from a theological standpoint, listen closely, from a theological standpoint, you can understand it really simply. It's not that complicated. It sounds like this. We know that before we had faith in Jesus Christ, we were what? We were adversaries of God, weren't we? We were enemies of God. We were His enemies. Before we knew Him, before we had faith in Jesus Christ, we were enemies of God, according to Romans 5.10. We were dead in our sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. We had already been judged. We had already been found guilty. We had already, friends, we had already been condemned, John 3.18. Before we had faith in Jesus Christ, we had already been sentenced to death, Romans 6.23. 
And prior to placing our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone for the saving of our souls, that was our condition. That was my condition. That was your condition. It was horrible. We were damned. We were the walking dead. And you know what? We needed to be saved. We needed to be rescued. And I want you to know that that is the sad and unfortunate state of every single person who has not yet believed in Jesus Christ for the saving of their souls. They're damned. They're already dead. They're enemies of God. They're dead in their sins. They're already judged. They're already condemned. And they are absolutely certain, friends, to face separation from God for an eternity in hell. The condition is incredibly dire. Many people have heard it. They've been told the truth of their sinful condition and they either don't believe it or they just don't care. And so they walk around living for themselves. They walk around pursuing their own every whim, their every passion. They pursue them and they seek to fulfill every single one of them. They entertain themselves and they consume themselves with temporary things, thinking that they will somehow find fulfillment in those temporary things. They have hope only until the grave, friends. You understand that? Their hope and their pleasure only lasts until the grave, and then it's instant and eternal torment. Do you know what they need? These people need to be saved. These people are dying. They need to be rescued. They need to be saved. They need to find salvation. We need to find a way to get them in right standing before God so that they don't perish and face eternal hell. And I want you to know that that's the first and most basic aspect of salvation. But I don't believe that that's what Paul is talking about here in verse 17 when he talks about the armor of God in Ephesians. I don't think he's telling us to put on the helmet of being saved. I don't want to tell you why. Because if we weren't saved, we wouldn't be in the battle. If we weren't saved, if we hadn't already placed our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we would not have made it to this point in the discussion of the armor of God. Do you understand? If you don't already have salvation, then you're not a genuine believer to begin with. If you don't have salvation already, then you are not the one who has already put on the breastplate and is protecting the vital areas of thought and emotion. You're not the one whose feet are securely laced up and fitted with the peace that you have with God. You don't have that if you don't already have salvation. You're not hiding behind your shield of faith if you don't have any salvation. So I don't think that's what Paul is after here in in verse 17. In the New Testament, I want you to know that there are several different aspects of salvation. The first one, and I believe this is the most critical, is the one that we've just spoken about. It's about placing your saving faith in Jesus Christ for the saving of your soul. That's the one that saves you. And that's the one that we have. And that's the one that we've been talking about. And I want you to know that the next aspect of salvation is the one that we saw in Philippians chapter 2. This is what Juan Carlos spoke about the last time he shared with us. I'm going to take you to verse 12, and I want you to follow along here. This is what Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So in this passage, Paul is telling us that the, he's telling the Philippians who have already been saved, they already have saving faith in Jesus Christ, they are already believers, and he's telling them, you need to work out your salvation. Friends, listen to me. If you are a believer, Paul says you need to work out your salvation. He's not telling them that they need to work out how they get saved. He's not saying, figure out a way where you can do the right things to earn your salvation because they were already saved. What he means is, the first facet of salvation has all already taken place on the inside. You have already been saved. Now listen to me. You need to make the outside reflect what has happened on the inside. Do you see that? This is so good. 
there's such a beautiful continuity in Scripture. And Paul is telling the Philippians the same thing that he told the Ephesians, which is this. Your practice must match your position. Do you see? Your practice must match your position. He's saying now that you're saved... Now that you're believers, you need to weed the garden. You need to go in and you need to pull out all the behaviors that don't honor God. You see, your ungodly conduct as a believer, as you grow in your faith, should happen fewer and further between. Do you understand? They should be less and less frequent. You should be growing. You should be continually developing more God-glorifying habits. That's the process of sanctification. Another fancy theological term. But it's important for us to understand that it never ends. You never get there. It doesn't matter how far you are along in your walk. You never reach the point where you have finally made it. I want you to know, friends, this is so important. As long as you are in this physical body, as long as you are here, you are going to struggle with the reality of sin. As long as here you will, you will always have your sinful nature attached to you. You will always carry it around. You are just no longer required to do what it tells you to do. It no longer rules over you like it does everyone else. But through the power of the Holy Spirit that's alive inside of every believer, you command that body, you command your flesh, you command your sinful nature, and you control it. And so daily you have to make the choice, you have to make a practice of killing the desires of your body. Do you hear? You must make the choice to kill the desires of your body. You have to do the things in your own mind. You have to choose to do the things that honor God. Satan is not going to do that for you. But I also don't believe that's what he's talking about in verse 17 either. I don't think he's talking about your sanctification. And I want to explain why. Now think about this. A couple of weeks ago when we were in verse 14, we spoke about the breastplate of righteousness. And I told you that we would do well to think of the breastplate like this. We said, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous before God and He gives you the breastplate. Do you remember me saying that? And then this is what I said. It's at that point which you have salvation but then you put the breastplate on when you begin to exercise righteous behaviors. And that's what protects your thinking, and that's what protects your emotion. Do you remember that? And that's what we called practical righteousness. That's the point of the breastplate. So when you begin to practice godly behaviors, when you begin to practice godly patterns, you are protecting your thoughts, you are protecting your emotions, the critical areas that Satan wants to attack. And you're protecting those. And that's the same thing as sanctification, isn't it? It's the same thing as working out your salvation from the inside to the outside. So if we're to think of the helmet of salvation as a process of working our salvation from the inside out, or the process of practical righteousness, or the process of sanctification, all the same thing in this context, then what we're doing is we're saying that the breastplate and the helmet are the same thing. And I don't believe that's what Paul's after. Are you still with me? It's important. Hang with me. So that only leaves us with one other option, and that's this third aspect of salvation. I want to talk to you about that this morning. So we've seen the past aspect, or the salvation which saves us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. For believers, I want you to know that that's a past and it's a completed transaction. Once you have placed your faith in Him to the saving of your souls, it's complete, it's done. And then you begin the process. You begin the process in the present aspect, which is acting like people who are saved. That's what you do next. Once you're saved, you begin to act like people who are saved. You begin to get it from the inside to the outside where everyone can see it, where it's evident that you are a believer. And then there's this third aspect, which I would call future. Now listen closely. This third aspect or this future aspect of salvation is the salvation of being liberated from your present sinful body. It's the salvation that comes from being liberated from your present worldly system. I want you to hear this. You see, even for those people who are saved from the rule of sin, 
the effects of sin still impact us. I've heard people say that they've been saved for 20 years and they no longer sin. Apparently spiritual pride is not a sin. But listen, friends, I want you to know that even the most mature believers will still struggle with the sinful nature. You're constantly going to battle it. That is the battle. You're going to constantly battle with your sinful nature. As long as you're in your body, it's going to entice you. It's going to fight you. And even the most mature believers, even those who are far advanced, who are way down the path in the process of practical righteousness, working their salvation from the inside to the outside, they still have a sinful nature. And I want you to know that Satan uses that. He knows that you do, and he uses that to entice you. He uses that sinful nature to elicit from you behaviors that don't honor God. And the reason that he does that is because he wants you to go astray so that he can accuse you. He wants you to go astray so that he can condemn you. That's exactly what he wants. And that's exactly what Paul had in mind in Romans chapter 7. I want you to think about this. I was talking to Beth about this this morning. Even the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, Think about this man. The man who was so mature in his faith that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write 13 of the New Testament books. The one who was so mature in his faith. The one whom God used to plant a minimum of 14 churches. That Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who stood before governors and procurators and famous philosophers and even Caesar himself. That Paul, the one who delivered powerful presentations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Paul who was so mature. The Paul who was so far along the path of sanctification. The Paul who was so committed to his faith that he willingly embraced brutal floggings, whippings, stonings, torture, and ultimately even giving up his own head. That Paul the one who did that for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Paul, even he was so frustrated with his own sinful nature that he cried out in Romans 7. He said, oh my God, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do the things that I want to do, but I do the very things that I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. I really want to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I want to do the right thing. I just can't do it. For I don't do the good that I want, and all I ever end up doing is the evil things that I don't want to do. Oh, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to set me free from this thing? Do you hear the cry of this man? This remarkably godly man? This man who is so advanced in his faith? And he's saying, when will I be set free from this body of death? When will I be set free from this thing that keeps dragging me into doing the things that don't honor God? When will I be set free from that? I hate that I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. I hate that I keep falling into the same sinful problems over and over. Have you ever felt that way, friends? Have you ever been there? The Apostle Paul has. I have. I hate the things that I just can't stop doing. They keep dragging me down and I keep falling to them over and over. God, I don't want to dishonor you. I don't want to use that kind of language. I don't want to have those kinds of thoughts. I don't want to practice that kind of behavior. I think I have it beaten and then I fall right back into it. That's what Paul is saying. That Paul, that Paul that wrote all this scripture, he's crying out for this third aspect of salvation. Do you hear it? Do you hear it in his letter? Do you hear it in his voice? He's saying, God, I want to be set free from the sinful body. I want to be liberated from the sinful world system. And that's the future 
salvation that occurs when we're made perfect and we're made free from our sinful nature. That's when you're liberated from your body. That's the kind of salvation that our friend Brian Reynolds was looking for when he told me, Scott, when I die, I'm looking forward to never having another sinful thought. He was looking for that salvation. He wanted to be liberated from his sinful body. He said, I'll be made perfect and all of that will be left behind. Listen, it's the promise that one day you will be saved permanently. You'll be permanently rescued from those behaviors. You'll be permanently rescued from that body that drags you down. And you'll be permanently rescued and placed in the presence of God. And you'll be free from the presence and the effect of sin. And you will be like Him because you will see Him for who He is. First John 3. Listen, this is the real and the ultimate hope. This is the real, ultimate hope of the believer. If not for that, why do we believe? If not for that, why are we going through this? This is the ultimate hope. This is ultimate salvation. And we stand on the spiritual ground as Satan comes in swinging his broadsword at our heads because he wants to make us question that salvation. He comes in and he makes us, he wants to make us question those things. He wants to convince you that you were never really saved. He wants to convince you that you're no different than you have ever been. Listen to me. Satan will look at you and he will say to you, look at yourself. Look at you. You aren't a real believer. You aren't really saved. If you were really saved, why do you keep struggling with that behavior? If you were really saved, why do you still have all of this sin in your life? Look at all of your failures. You lie to the people that you claim to love. You use language that no one should use. You're so self-focused. And it's no wonder because if you look at yourself, you've got a lot of problems. There's no way that you're saved. Look at all the things you do wrong. You're a fraud. You're a phony. That's what he'll tell you. Because he wants you to believe that there's no place for you in the Christian fellowship. He wants you to believe that you don't belong. And he'll say to you, how could someone like you ever fit in with people like that? How could you ever fit in with those people who none of them have the same problems that you have? Did God really say, did God really say that old things have passed away and all things have become new? Has he really said that? Did he really say that to you? Then why do you keep doing the same old stuff if it's all passed away? Listen to me, friends. Satan is swinging his broadsword at your head. He's trying to create doubt. That's what he does. Don't doubt. You know the real measure of a believer, the real measure of a believer's character I want you to hear this. It's so important. It's not how many times he fails. The real measure of a believer's character is not many, how many times he falls down or how many mistakes he makes. It's how committed he is to repent and to turn from his sin and to serve Christ in spite of all of his failings. That's the real measure of a believer. That's the real measure of the character of a believer. Satan sees you praying for your husband and your family members who refuse to serve the Lord. And he says, why don't you just give up? What's the point? Why are you praying for them? What are you doing? Your husband is never going to serve the Lord. He's just not. Your loved one is never going to listen to your testimony. He wants you to become discouraged. That's why he does that. Listen, he wants you to stop praying. He wants you to stop interceding on their behalf. And that's him riding along, swinging his broadsword at your head. He wants to create doubt. Do you know how you protect yourself from that? Put on that thing that goes around your head. Salvation. It must be the thing that goes around your head to deflect those blows. You put your salvation on your head because He will tempt you and He will cause you to slip and fall. He will tempt you. He'll discourage you. And when you've fallen, He'll tell you to give up, that you're not real. He'll discourage you because He will never, ever stop swinging that broadsword at your head. He'll never stop. And if your head is not wrapped in salvation, 
If you don't have that firmly embraced around your head, He'll split you wide open. When He attempts to cause you to question your faith, when He attempts to cause you to question your salvation, you can respond by saying, my salvation comes at the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is going to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who are you to condemn? You who have already been condemned. When He attempts to convince you to become discouraged and to give up, you can say, I will not lose heart. And doing good, for in due time I will reap a harvest if I don't grow weary. I will stay in the battle and I will stand firm. I will have perseverance. And I will endure for His name's sake. I will not grow weary. Friends, listen. It is the fact that you have been saved and the fact that you have been rescued from eternal death by your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that secures your salvation It is that faith that secures your right standing before God. And because of that past salvation, you have the promise of future salvation as well. You have the promise that you'll be liberated from this sinful death trap. It's the promise that ultimately, He's going to deliver you from this body of sin. And I want you to know that it's that knowledge as you stand in the battlefield that provides you the hope and the confidence that you need to stand as he swings his broadsword at your head, and as he takes the most vicious attacks against you, it is that knowledge that will hold you firm and protect your head and deflect his blows. It's all made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for saving me. I thank you, Lord, for rescuing me. I thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to pay the ultimate price that I could be saved from this body of death, this body of sin. And I thank You, Lord, that in Your great love that You bled and that You died so that simply by believing that Your sacrifice was enough to satisfy God, I have salvation. And so now, Lord, we would take some time this morning to come together to remember the sacrifice that You made to provide that salvation for us. And I pray, God, that as we do that, that you'll be honored by the humble gratitude in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name.